heart. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are grateful to you for the goodness that you have shown through Jesus Christ. This, Lord, this morning, Lord, our, our hearts are enriched with the music that we've heard. I could just imagine how wonderful it will be with the angels playing in heaven. The scriptures tell us that God will joy over, sing over us with joy. We can't wait to hear you sing. This morning as we open your word, help us to be faithful to it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So things are getting uh, really in difficult straits in Europe. Hitler had advanced across the entire continent, it seemed. He was um, advancing on France, and France had what they called the Mignon Wall, this huge barricaded wall with uh, just an unbelievable amount of concrete. They were daring Germany to even try to come across. And so what they did is they said, okay, they drove up to Belgium and around the wall on the other side and conquered France. Um, they had conquered all of East, uh, Western Europe, and now Hitler was marching on the Soviet Union and the Red Army. The Third Reich was aiming to reign for a thousand years. They were a well-oiled genocidal, genocidal machine. They were planning on wiping out an entire race, and they were good at it. The world was about to change, it looked like, forever. The Allies recognized if they didn't do something now, it would probably be too late. Hitler was just scooping up countries and wealth. Hitler was worried about the Allies coming in through Great Britain. And so he built what was called the Atlantic Wall. I got ahead of myself. We're doing a sanctuary series today. It's on Leviticus 23. We're looking at the sanctuary services and God's messages to us through them. This is our fourth message. Next Sabbath is December of the 22nd. We'll have a Christmas musical here. You won't want to miss that. December the 29th, we're going to be exploring the Day of Atonement and its meaning and application today. You won't want to miss that. January 5th, we'll be looking at the last of the services of the sanctuary, the Feast of Tabernacles, and what God has for us in store through that understanding. So Hitler and the Atlantic Wall, you see it pictured here, it's the green line going from Spain all the way to the top of Norway. This was an incredible fortification that he had built. I have some specs about it that, that it just seemed to defy imagination. There was uh, almost 2,000 miles of a wall built. 15,000 separate concrete emplacements, 3,000 soldiers, 1.2 million tons of steel in the wall, 17 million cubic meters of concrete. The French portion alone cost $206 billion in today's currency. There was 5 million landmines planted along this, and the man in charge, the desert fox, Rommel, a crafty general, that knew how to fight war and wage success. Hitler was concerned that they would try to come from Great Britain across, and there's two areas of concern. You see how close it is there, and, and the closest point is Pas de Calais, and that's where Hitler knew that the Allies would come in. There was another area that was of concern as well, the Normandy landing. And it was at this time the... the uh, the Allied forces were planning, how can we stop him? 
And the strongest contenders were saying, no, let's just do a slow advance. But Eisenhower said, no, we have to stop him now. There's millions of lives being taken out and we have to do something immediately. So they came up with a plan called Operation Overlord. And this plan was to move 160,000 soldiers in one day across that little gap and put them on the beaches of Normandy. They had 6,000 boats, 5,000 planes to make this happen. They put it all together on this map. This was the imitation of what really was going to happen. You see there, you can, we can come up closer, you see they plotted out the, the exact path that the ships would go. They had the ships, their sizes, all of them plotted out with clocks on there to know exactly what time things were gonna happen. This was the miniature of what the reality was going to be. And on January 6, excuse me, June 6, 1944, the whole operation set into motion. 6,000 ships approached the Normandy shore. These troop carriers came up to the beaches with their doors up and machine gun flak was hitting the doors as they approached them. The soldiers inside could hear machine gun bullets hitting the door. The doors dropped open when they hit the beach. Many of them died without ever getting out of the carrier. They stormed the beach. They marched inch by inch up across this landfilled waste. They, they scaled the cliffs. They destroyed the uh, embankments that were there. And they made a foothold that night. The next day it grew and the next day it grew. And through that little wedge that they made, they were able to force their way through in and stop Hitler's terrible regime. At the cost of immense life, was it worth it? It all began with a plan. A plan that was in miniature, that helped everyone see what would happen to save life. God has a plan. And he laid it out in miniature so we could see the real thing. There would be real life expenditure to save. Real blood would be spilt this plan was helping us to understand the reality that would take place. Do you want to see it? God's plan? Right here. This is the gospel in miniature. God's plan to save mankind. Now we have looked at the different meanings and symbolisms of this and the services. We've looked at the Passover and today we're going to be looking at the spring feasts. Now, I need seven young volunteers that are strong. You can stand still for a period of time. Okay, I need seven. Okay, Michael's a strong young man. I need, okay, Christian's another strong young man. It don't have to be just men. Any? Uh, Giovanni? Okay, that's three. I need four more. Quick hands. All right. Adeline, right? Ada. A Ada. Okay, all right, Ada. Everyone gets mixed up. I'm, yeah, I do that a lot. Elliot? Okay, one, two, three, four, five. Right there, who, where hand, over here, yes. All right, Juba, okay, five. Okay, just stand right up here, please. Come, come right up here. All right, these are going to be, these are going to be feasts. Leviticus 23 is the chapter we're gonna to go to, and if you wanna look that up in your Bible, please do. Uh, there's, there's uh, one, two, three, four, five, six. I need one more, right there. Okay, he doesn't want to. Someone that wants to come up and, I see a hand, yes, Matthias, please. Come right on up here. Okay. 
uh, the feasts. There are seven feasts uh, in the Hebrew calendar year, and the first one is Passover. the Passover. The first one is the Passover. Now, the Passover happens on the fifth, 14th day of the month, the 14th day of the month. Okay, so you are going to be the Passover. The second feast is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I bet you know what you are. All right. The next feast is the Feast of First Fruits. That's you. Feast of First Fruits. All right. Then, then the next feast, I'm drawing a blank because? Pentecost. Pentecost. Feast of Weeks. Feast of Weeks. Your Feast of Weeks. Scoot over this way just a little bit. Just a little bit. All right. And then we have the Feast of Trumpets. You like trumpets. And then the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay. All right, so these feasts happen in the year, but they're divided. Okay, you got to divide right here. Scoot that way a little bit, and they're divided. There's the spring feasts, and there's the fall feasts. So these spring feasts. Now, the first three happen almost consecutively, almost. On the Passover, scoot right on over here. On the Passover, it happens toward the end of the day at twilight. They're to sacrifice a lamb, and they're to put the blood on the doorposts and the lentil of the door. And then... We have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That begins the next day. And it goes for seven days. It's a seven-day feast. That's you. Okay, that begins right there. Okay, then we have the Feast of First Fruits. That's you. Now, this begins somewhere in between. It happens the day after the Sabbath, wherever the Sabbath is in the week. And so you just are kind of right in front there. Then there's a gap. There's a gap of seven weeks or 49 days plus one. That's you. Come right over here. We're going to leave a little gap right there. And then we have a big space all the way to the end of the year. And we have on the seventh month, and it's the first day, yeah, it's the first day we have the Feast of Trumpets. And then we have a gap of 10 days. And on the 10th day, we have the Day of Atonement. And on the 15th day, we have the Feast of Tabernacles. So that's the feast that happened through the year. So you kind of see that's how they're grouped. Okay, guys, you did a great job. You can go sit back down. So those are the feasts we're going to be diving into and looking at today. And according to Hebrews 10, verse 1, that the law was a shadow of things to come. So as we're looking at these different feasts, we're trying to understand what is to come, what God is help, wants us to understand about the plan of salvation. So Leviticus 23 is where we're going to go. Leviticus 23 and verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord and you shall proclaim as holy convocations, they are my appointed feasts. Now some of your Bibles will say appointed times. It's not actually two words in Hebrew, it's just one, moed. Moed, it means appointed times. So these were God's appointed times. And that's an important point to note. Now, there are those who have become confused when it comes to feast days. Indeed, they actually think we should keep the feast today, just like we do the seventh-day Sabbath. They say, well, they were given in the Old Testament, and so we should keep them in the New. Well, you'll remember from the study we had before in Hebrews 7 that Jesus came from a different order of priesthood. He didn't come from Aaron. He came from Melchizedek, and his priesthood would go for Ever. And Paul asserts the point that when there's a change in priesthood, there's a change in the law. And if there's a change in the law, that means we're moving away from the old law and we're moving on to a new. And he builds that point in Hebrews 8 that we go to a new covenant. And this new covenant you heard so wonderfully read this morning, where God would write his laws in our hearts. 
Right, so Hebrews chapter 9 tells us what that new old covenant was. The old covenant was, it had divine services and it had an earthly tabernacle. So the old covenant is the miniature helping us to understand the real that God is going to do. So there was a change in the law. And we saw in Hebrews that the old is done away because Christ is the living way. He's the new and better way. So the old Hebrew sanctuary system is no longer to be kept. We no longer keep the feast days. But there are some that will come here and they read this. There are moed that God has given. And they search throughout the Bible for the word moed, which is reasonable. You want to understand what God says about that. And the very first time it occurs is in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 14. That God put the sun, moon, and the stars in, this, in the heavens for signs and for seasons. Now that word seasons is moed. And here's where the breakdown happens. There are words that mean more than one thing. Now if I tell you about a bank, am I talking about a bank beside a river? Am I talking about a plane that's banking? Am I talking about a building that holds money? That word means different things. If I talk to you about a check, am I talking about a symbol, a check? Am I talking about a piece of paper that represents money? Am I talking about stopping someone, you check them? Words can mean different things. And that's especially true in Hebrew. Words can mean different things. So how do you know what is meant by that word? And in Hebrew, it's understood by the context of the situation. As a matter of fact, the word for man can also be husband. So how do you know if it's a man or a husband? Because the context will tell you. So this word moed in Genesis, it's referring to, it's translated across the board, translated seasons. And in my opinion, it's appropriately so. That before the flood, there were seasons. And there will be some that say, wait a minute, there was no floods before. There was no seasons before the flood. Well, how do you know? I, you know, you weren't there, I wasn't there. There's different kinds of seasons. There's what we have with the cold and hot, but in Central uh, Africa, you have rainy and dry. So the scriptures clearly could be understood that there were seasons, rainy and dry. The argument is made that since there were moed in Genesis 1, feast days existed before sin. And if they existed before sin, then we should still be keeping them because they're not done away with like the ceremonial law. The problem with that is, as we look today in Leviticus 23, we can clearly see where these began. There is no way any of these feasts began before sin. As we see in Passover, Passover began when? When the children of Israel were delivered from Egypt and the death angel passed over and those that had the blood were covered and those that didn't have the blood the firstborn was killed. We can clearly identify in the Bible where Passover began. There's no doubt. It's there. So Genesis 1 is not reasonable to say that feast days existed before. The other argument that's made that we should still keep feast days is that they are a law. They are a law. And if they're a law, they're always a law. Now that makes sense on the surface, but um, we don't still sacrifice lambs. If you sinned in the Old Testament, you were to take a lamb to the temple and sacrifice it. That's what you were to do. It was a law. But we no longer do that because there's a change in the law and now Christ has shown us the real and living way. Now for some of you that went right over your head, that's okay. 
We're going to shift and we're going to look at the feasts themselves. Leviticus 23, starting with verse 4. These are the appointed times. Actually, no, verse 3. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. The very first appointed time in Leviticus 23 is the seventh day Sabbath. Hmm. Now, is the seventh day Sabbath part of the ceremonial law? No. It is an appointed time where we meet before God. Wouldn't you agree? Every seventh day, it's a time that's appointed that we meet before God. The Sabbath is an appointed time, but it is not like the other ceremonial times that we meet with God because it stands forever. It began before sin, and according to Isaiah 66, it will exist after sin. But the rest of the feasts, they're done away with. Actually, they become just a living reality, as we have seen earlier. I think I'm done with that. Okay. All right, verse, uh, verse four. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocation, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight is the Lord's Passover. So on the fifth, 14th day of the month, they were to bring a lamb at twilight, slay it, and put the blood on the doorposts of, the, of, the, of their door to protect them inside. Now, this represented a real work that Jesus was going to do. What year did this happen? AD 31. Jesus was crucified. His blood was spilled. The Lamb of God died for us. We can see exactly when this feast came to fruition. AD 31, Jesus was our Passover. Indeed, it says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Christ was our Passover crucified for us. Christ was our Passover. So AD 31, that's when this feast became a reality. Then the next feast we have is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, let's look at this. This is very interesting. Now in Exodus chapter 12, it tells us about this feast. Exodus 12, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your house. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person will be cut off from Israel. And then Exodus 12, verse 20, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. So the, the 14th day was Passover. The next day was the 15th. And they were to go through their house and clean out everything that had leaven in it. And I can just see Faith sending our girls into the cupboards. Girls, make sure you get every bit of leaven out. And they're sweeping and getting out of the corners, every bit of leaven, and they put it into a bucket and they take it outside of the house. I don't know if they dumped it in the woods or what, but they got rid of every bit of leavening that was in the house. The house was clean, no leaven at all for seven days. This was very special. And they ate unleavened bread for the seven days. So two things happened on the Feast of Unleavened. Number one, you got rid of all the leavening and you ate only unleavened bread. So what does leaven represent? In 1 Corinthians 6, is it 5? 5, yeah, 1 Corinthians 5, it says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump 
as you are really unleavened, for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. Let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So leaven represented malice and evil. It represented sin. They were supposed to cleanse all of that out of the house on the day after Passover. Do you get that? Because the lamb had been slain, the sin was now to be cleansed out of the house. There's a certain order to it. They didn't cleanse the house first and then the lamb was slain. It was cleansed because of the blood. And they were to cleanse it all out. The blood had saved them. And because of the blood, they were now to be clean. And they were supposed to eat unleavened bread. Now this tells, we're told in 1 Corinthians 5 that, that unleavened bread is sincerity and truth. They were to cleanse out sin and they were to eat truth. Now you remember in John 6, Jesus told everyone there, I am the bread of life. And they were shocked. Who could eat a human? And Jesus went on to tell them, he said, unless you eat my flesh, you have no life in you. They had to eat his flesh. They had to eat his truth. My words, they are life and truth. Amen. So on day one, the lamb was sacrificed, AD 27. The next day after that, there is an offering made of purity and the evil is cleansed because of what happened on the cross. Can you see the step? All right. Then that happens there. Now according to Exodus 23, let's go, excuse me, Leviticus 23, we have the next feast, which is the feast of first fruits. Speak to the people of Israel in verse 10 and say, when you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of first fruits of your harvest to the priest and shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Now this is a feast that was never kept ever kept by the children of Israel while they were in the wilderness. It was only kept when they went into Canaan and they had their harvests and it was at that time they began to keep this feast and they were told that they, when they came before the Lord during Passover time, on the day after the Sabbath, they were to bring the first fruit offering before the Lord. Now this first fruit offering represented the rest of the harvest that was to come. The first fruit offering was the best, the biggest grains, and it represented the whole entire harvest. Now, can we mark that in time? Now, we're told in, I just drew a blank. Help me out here. Aha, 1 Corinthians 15. Does that ever happen and you just draw a complete blank? Okay. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is talking about the, uh, the, the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, and verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Paul identifies that Christ is the first fruit. So we have the Passover represents Jesus on the cross. We have the unleavened bread, which represents the perfect untarnished sacrifice of Jesus and his cleansing that happens in our life because of that. Then we happen on the day 
after the Sabbath, which is Sunday, on, they're supposed to wave the first fruits, which represents Jesus' resurrection. We see these, these feasts have real application in the plan of salvation. They represent exactly what Jesus was going to do, and it happened right on time. The very next feast in Leviticus 23, we have the feast of what's called weeks, or feast of Pentecost, verse 15. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. Now this is very interesting. So on that Sunday, they're to count 50 days, and they're gonna come down to another Sunday, and on that Sunday, something special is going to happen. Let's read. And this is in verse... Uh, 17, you shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved made of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be a fine flour and they shall be baked with leaven. They shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. Now, during unleavened bread, they weren't supposed to use leavening because a little leaven changes the whole thing. But you come down here to the Feast of Weeks and they're supposed to use leaven and they put it into the bread. Now, when you bake with leaven and you put it inside of the dough, it changes the whole thing. It permeates the every little fiber, every little grain of, of, uh, of wheat, and it changes the entire thing to a different structure entirely. Leaven represents power to change. Now, in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it represented wicked power to change. But in this feast here, it represents a different power to change. You should see on this particular feast, there would be a power that changes things. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm excited, but this is, this is amazing. Verse 22, and when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, for I am the Lord. So on the Feast of Weeks, they were to use bread with leaven, bread that had been changed by a power, and they were to help the poor. So we have, again, looking at the feast, we have Passover, represents Christ on the cross. We have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which represents his pure sacrifice and the cleansing of sin in our life. We have the next one is the Feast of first fruits, and that represents the resurrection. And then we march down 50 days, and we come to Pentecost. If you go with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Jesus was meeting with his disciples. And verse 3. And he presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So after the Feast of First Fruits, if you march forward 40 days, you're 10 days away from Pentecost. Now, as Christians, we miss the importance of, Hebrew, I mean, of Acts 2, verse 1. Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived. How many days was this after Jesus' resurrection? 50. When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven the sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. 
and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to give speak to in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. There was a power that came into the church 50 days after the resurrection, a leavening that went in and changed the entire church a power. Do you see it prophesied in the sanctuary what was going to happen? The sanctuary prophesied exactly what was going to happen in God's plan of salvation. Acts 2, verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. When the power came into the church as prophesied, they began to help the poor. Did we see that in Leviticus 23? They didn't glean the edges because they were to leave that for the poor. The sanctuary, this, this whole, uh, these feasts represent the reality of God's plan for you and me. The Feast of Pentecost was the last feast that happened in the spring. Then at the end of the year, there was another feast, three feasts, and the first one was the Feast of Trumpets. Now, trumpets gives to mind a warning. When the children of Israel marched around Jericho seven times, they blew trumpets, warning of something that was to come. When, the men, when Gideon's men surrounded the army and they broke their, uh, their, their um, coverings, held up their banners, and they blew their trumpets, trumpets warn of something to come. You'll find out more about that on the Sabbath after Christmas, December 29. These feasts represent real events in the plan of salvation. But they also represent real things that you and I need to have applied to our life. In the Passover, unless the blood was applied to the opening of the place where people dwelt, the firstborn would die. That teaches us in a powerful point in the plan of salvation. Unless Jesus' blood is applied to our minds, to our life, to cleanse us, our lives will not endure forever. They will be cut off. The Feast of Unleavened Bread teaches a powerful lesson to us. Unless we feed every day on the perfect, spotless life of Jesus, we will have no life within us. Indeed, it says in Leviticus, they will be cut off from the children of Israel. If you don't stay connected to Jesus, there's no way you're gonna stay connected to his people. The other thing they were to do is they were to go throughout their house and they were to find every bit of leaven in the house and take it out. This leaven, this leaven is a power to change. What has power to change you in your life? The Holy Spirit. Yeah, we haven't gotten to Pentecost yet. What has power to change you for evil in your life? When I was a, a young boy, I went out to visit my uncle out in Washington State, and uh, he was really big into Westerns, and, and he had uh, Western movies. Every day I was watching Western movies. Now, I like horses, nothing wrong with that. I like cowboy hats, nothing wrong with that. But Western movies did not lead me closer to the Lamb of God. Indeed, they led me away. So I began to buy Louis Lamar Western books and read these books, and I had stacks of them. And then I remember hearing someone preaching about Acts 19 
and verse 18, where these individuals became convicted that the things in their life were pulling them away from God. And they had a big bonfire. And they brought all of these things and they burned them. And I became convicted. I had to get rid of some stuff in my life. So I did what they did. I took my stack of Louis Lamar books and I went out behind our little shed and I burned every single one of them because I knew that in my life they were leading me away from Jesus. Is there anything in your life that you need to clean out? Is there anything in your life that is leading you away from God? Jesus doesn't ask you to do it alone. He shed his blood on the cross to provide power for you to have a clean life. It's just giving it to him. Some years later, a friend gave me a Louis Lamar book. I read it. And then I bought another one. You know what happened? Pretty soon, my life was filled with Louis Lamar books again. And the Spirit convicted me. And I went up behind my shed and I burned them again. If we don't get them out of our life, they will creep back in. Is it music? Is there things on your phone, your computer that you need to clean off? Do you need to put a, a website protector to keep you from looking at things that you shouldn't on the internet? What do you need to clean out? The scripture is clear that those who aren't clean will be cut off from the camp. So we see the Passover is an experience that we all can participate in, where Christ's blood will cover us. We need to be clean and can be clean, and we should partake daily of feeding on his word. The experience of the resurrection, that when we die to this world, Christ can live within us. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet Christ lives in me. Do you want the resurrected Christ to live in you? He wants to live in you. Several years ago, I remember visiting my grandfather in his room. He just barely could greet me. Um, it's the last time I saw him alive. His legs were huge. They had swollen. Um, he died from cancer. But because of what I understand in these appointed times, these feasts of the Lord, when we come down to the Feast of First Fruits, it tells me that because Jesus rose from the tomb, there's a harvest to come. He's not the last one that will come out of the grave. There's more to come. And I praise God, it won't be the last time that I see my grandfather. We could participate in that resurrection as well. We come on down to the Feast of Pentecost. Christ poured his spirit out on the, Holy Spirit, on the disciples and was a power that filled and changed them. Now, I don't read anywhere in my Bible at all where he says, I will never pour out my spirit again. The spirit is willing and able and available to fill those who long to be filled with it, to experience a power that comes in and changes. Do you want that? Do you want to be filled with God's Spirit? Amen. Do you know what they were doing in Acts chapter 2? They were together in one place, praying. Praying. 
I think it's good when we can get together and pray. We have here at times prayers of day, uh, days of prayer and fasting. Got that backwards. But we spend time together in prayer. God wants to fill his church so that it is a mighty army in his hands accomplishing and, f- and winning battles for him. But his church must be together, praying, seeking his spirit. I won't go into the other three feasts. Those are going to be discussed later. But I hope today at least that you have seen that these feasts represent the living reality of God's plan to save you and me. That they are actually points in time representing his work to save us. If we were to actually keep the feast today, we would be saying, no, Lord, you haven't begun this new work. No, Lord, I want to continue these because um, you haven't started the real thing yet. When the real thing has begun, the old is passed away. We're told in Hebrews 8, behold, all things are become new. I hope you experience in your life the living reality that God has for you.